You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. We are with my good friend and truly one of the Council's favorite visitors. Frankly, I've lost count on how many times Jeremy <laughs> Suri has delighted our audience. Dr. Suri holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor in the University's Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He's the author of a number of books on contemporary politics and foreign policy. In fact, his most recent book, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, is really interesting. You spoke about it last year, yes. and I enjoyed it so much. Another book that I really enjoyed is Henry Kissinger and the American Century. But I've not yet read Foreign Policy Breakthroughs, Cases in Successful Diplomacy. <laughs> so I expect soon, Jeremy, that you'll send me I, a copy. I will make sure to send you a signed copy. Great to have you with us. Thank you. So in a few minutes, you'll be talking with our members, and the title of your remarks is Withdrawal, What is Our Word Worth? So I remembered the famous quotation of Will Rogers. It takes a lifetime to build a reputation, but you can lose it in a minute. So whether or not you're a supporter of President Trump, this is certainly an issue about how are we withdrawing from various agreements. Give us a cliff note so what you're going to talk about today. So uh, the Will Rogers quote is a perfect entry point. Uh, I'm going to talk about Mark Twain also today, <laughs> uh, another great humorist. Uh, and I think that the deeper point is that U.S. foreign policy always depends upon other societies uh, believing in our good intentions and our desire to help them as well as helping ourselves. We are not a power that is comfortable going around the world and using our might without having right attached to it. And in the last few years, we have been less effective than we have been in the past at connecting those two propositions, the use of our power for our interests and the interests of other societies as well. And so I think we are in jeopardy now of not losing our place in the world, but of having to pay a higher cost to get people to cooperate with us. And we are as dependent, if not more than ever before, Jim, on the cooperation of other societies. And so the dilemma for us is how do we elicit cooperation and rebuild some of the goodwill that I think we've lost over the last two administrations? You talk about cooperation. That's a valid point. We'll come back to that. But let's talk about word and the ability to stick by your agreements. Our mutual friend Jeff Engel wrote a fascinating book, When the World Seemed New. Yes. And in that, he talks about when Secretary Baker told Mikhail Gorbachev, NATO would not move one inch yes. eastward. So that's just one instance of where the United States, at least in that case verbally, but there have been cases when it's been a, a solemn treaty where we have stepped back. And states do this all the time. To say that you're true to your word does not mean you are flawless or free of hypocrisy. Uh, we all are, make exceptions. Uh, the, the case is more, do you in general follow through on what you tell people you are going to do? And over the last 70 years, the United States has a very good record of actually following through on its alliance commitments, following through on its economic commitments to other societies, and most important, following through on its commitments to opening its own society to other people. In the last few years, we have backtracked on a wide range of those commitments. And that, in the long run, now raises questions that all of our allies are asking as to whether the words we had given before, 
that they knew we might fulfill only 75% of the time, whether we'll even fulfill them 50% of the time, and that difference is crucial. And the withdrawal from the JCPOA, the Iran now, deal, course, is a perfect example of this, It, isn't it is it? indeed, because this is a deal that we ourselves love the negotiations on, and it is a deal that by all accounts the Iranians are sticking to. That doesn't mean they will forever. And we have now put our allies, Jim, in a horrible situation because we are now not only threatening to sanction Iran, we are threatening to sanction our allies for maintaining an agreement that we encourage them to join. So we have not only gone back on our word, we have entrapped our allies. Now, President Trump has withdrawn the United States from the TPP, but we were not a signatory. Right. Are there other treaties or contracts that the United States has withdrawn in the same way that we have with the JCPOA? Yes, we have uh, withdrawn our participation in the Human Rights Commission through the United Nations. We have actively discouraged the United Nations from doing its work in many areas. And I think most significant of all, we have gone back on a series of WTO commitments we made uh, to open our society to foreign trade. And the trade war that we've had with, with China is not the violation of a treaty, but it's a violation of long-standing trade agreements going back to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT. And there's certainly been a number of instances where we have stepped back from policy agreements, what had been followed, and clearly that's been in the Middle East, the relocation Precisely. of the U.S. Embassy yes. from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, yes. and most recently, the acceptance of the annexation of the Golan Heights. And it's important to point out to people that not only were these reversals, as you said so well, of U.S. policy, these are violations of U.N. resolutions that we ourselves sponsored and supported. And so we are going back on an, a long series of international legal agreements that we have supported. Comment on, well, President Reagan spoke famously about trust but verify mm -hmm. when he mm -hmm. was negotiating with the Soviets. Reagan's point, uh, and he begins to use that phrase in 85 when Gorbachev comes to power and he first meets with Gorbachev in Geneva and then the famous Reykjavik summit in 1986. Reagan's point was that you have to negotiate even with countries that you don't always trust. Uh, the international system is filled with all kinds of actors. And we have never been successful, never in the United States, by ignoring powerful actors. We tried this with China for about uh, 20 years and it didn't work. We tried this with Russia after the revolution. And so Reagan was saying to his own hardliners, we have to work with the Soviet Union even as we call them the evil empire. And we will enter into negotiations, but we will create processes by which we can confirm that they are fulfilling their obligations and in which we can show that we are fulfilling our obligations. That's how credibility works. That's how you build your word in the international system. And the really important point, Jim, is that uh, not only did this process produce treaties like the INF Treaty and START uh, that were verified, it actually built trust. So it's not just trust but verify. It's that when you verify, you build trust. And the end of the Cold War, in part, was because of the trust that Reagan and Gorbachev built through their mutual verification process. You know, you and I have talked quite a bit about this, that we are seeing a gradual breakdown of what one calls the liberal order. Given what our behavior has become in the last two, two and a half years, are we giving other nations, so to speak, cover to behave poorly? Absolutely. I mean, we're in the position of that uh, parent who uh, drinks too much and then tells uh, his child, stop drinking. Uh, our words are less believable. Our behavior is encouraging the very actions that we don't want to see. For example, our flagrant use of force and our flagrant use of our economic leverage to coerce even our own allies and the disrespect and contempt in which we treat our allies empowers someone like Vladimir Putin, who is a far worse actor, to do all these things. It makes it harder for us to criticize him. We tell him he should treat countries around him with respect, that he should treat the leader of Germany with respect. 
and we treat her with contempt ourselves, how are we going to convince him? Can you be more specific, say, what our relations are now with Canada or Mexico? I'll talk about Canada and Mexico, but also Australia, one of our closest allies. Uh, we have uh, made it clear to the Australians that we're not sure that we're even going to fulfill our commitments to them militarily and economically and uh, treated them with explicit contempt. With regard to Canada and Mexico, uh, we have taken long-standing trade agreements that we encourage them to negotiate, and we have gone back on them and told them that they must actually now fulfill requests we are making, even though they have already fulfilled their obligations. And then, of course, the way we treat immigrants, Jim, at the border, proclaiming that we're going to build a wall and that they're going to pay for it, which is a complete lie, and then forcing them to deal with our own uh, brutality at the border and separating families. The separation. In preparation of seeing you again, I reread an article that you wrote a while ago in the Washington Post about presidential empathy, where you reminded readers about the manner in which President Roosevelt used his fireside chats to speak, let me use the word, intelligently yes. with the American <laughs> public. And it's not just with President Trump. This has gone on for a long time. Yes. What is needed so that the president, the executive branch, does not speak down to the American public? Is it just that they feel that we won't listen? I think there are two dynamics that have taken us away from the kind of rhetorical leadership we need. Uh, one is the way in which our media cycle encourages saying things fast and saying things that are easily quotable. Uh, and things that you say fast and that are easily quotable usually aren't helpful. And second, um, the way in which our political system, because of money and gerrymandering, which were long-standing problems, but because they've gotten worse, has become not a, si a system with a single electorate, but with many mobilized interest groups. And so you say things to different interest groups, you don't lead the people as a whole. What we need, and what I think we're going to get after 2020, uh, are leaders who recognize it is their job to bring people together, and that is their job not to offer easy solutions because there are no easy solutions to our big problems, but instead to help people understand the problem better. Leadership, Jim, what Roosevelt chose, is not uh, having solutions. Leadership is bringing people together to share a common problem. When you bring Americans together around a common problem, good things will happen. What we're doing now is we're not actually talking about the problems. We're talking about solutions that are disconnected from problems. They're instead solutions that serve certain interests. And what are you hearing your students say? Uh, my students, I'm convinced, Jim, are the next greatest generation. They are not divided in the way our public is. Uh, they are fed up with the rhetoric they're hearing, but they see real problems that need to be solved. They all care about the environment. Well, I always like to finish Global IQ on an optimistic note, and that usually happens with you. Thank you, Jeremy Suri. Thank you for having me, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.